you can't really tell the difference between an abusive man and a non-abusive man except by his decision to engage in abusive behavior. This is not about psychology. This is about someone choosing to behave in a particular way. It's like being a hostage, like being a prisoner, but you are afraid to leave because of the threats and because of the prior violence. And so that fear is very, very powerful. I think both parts of him were real and he wanted to fight for good things and he believed in good things. And the other part of him, this monstrous need and desire to dominate and humiliate women was also a part of him. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a Christmas book out titled The Sled. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is away on business today. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take the opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, on May 7th, 2018, The New Yorker published a piece written by Jane Meyer and Ronan Farrow about physical abuse allegations made by four women against New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. Shortly after the publication, within three hours, Schneiderman denied the allegations but resigned. A champion for women's rights and a supporter of the Me Too movement, Schneiderman led the charge in taking legal action against Harvey Weinstein and the many allegations of sexual misconduct against Mr. Weinstein. He also sponsored as a senator a Strangulation Prevention Act, which made the intentional obstruction of breathing or blood circulation into a misdemeanor. So we're going to ask the question today, how could one's public life in the spotlight be so far off from private life as an alleged abuser? And today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss those allegations against New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, take a look inside domestic violence and sexual misconduct cases, and the psychology behind the obvious conflict between his support of the Me Too movement on the outside and his private behavior. To do that, we have a great lineup for you today. Our first guest is Professor Carla Fisher. She's a recently retired adjunct professor from the Illinois College of Law. Carla was dual trained as a lawyer and psychologist, graduating from the University of Illinois back in 1992, and has a PhD in psychology as well as a JD. Welcome to the show, Carla. Thank you. I say back in 1992. Mine's back a little bit further than that. Uh, <laughs> our next guest is attorney Joan Meyer from George Washington University Law School. Joan is a nationally recognized expert on domestic violence and the law, appellate litigation, and clinical law teaching. Welcome to the show, Joan. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have Julie Owens. Julie is a survivor of domestic violence who has worked in the field of violence against women and women's empowerment since 1989. She trains professionals widely and has served as an expert witness in both criminal and civil cases regarding domestic violence and domestic violence-related post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as PTSD. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, before we get started, would one of the three of you like to take on just a little bit of background about the article published by The New Yorker and detail the allegations against Mr. Schneiderman? Well, of course... 
I think most of us who work in domestic violence are pretty shocked given that he has been such a supposed champion of women's causes and the empowerment of women. You know, the thing that I think is common with other domestic violence cases that I'm familiar with is that he apparently had this, you know, what victims call a Jekyll Hyde personality. He was really a different person at home than he was at work. And even though some people may have seen signs, he was quite controlling, which is typical and did not seem to have any kind of remorse for what he did, making excuses. And also a lot of it, a lot of what I was hearing was very typical. The fact that these women had been kind of lured by him, I think is what was particularly disturbing about this, to me at least, because, you know, having worked on hundreds and hundreds of, you know, domestic violence cases over the years, the fact that when I see someone like him, who's very highly intelligent, very charming, but very cunning and sadistic and very much a predator who plans and plots how to select and groom a victim. It was not random at all. And I think sometimes abusers meet women kind of randomly. In this case, it was pretty obvious that he almost infiltrated groups where there were uh, women who were empowered, who were successful, and he seemed to take real pleasure in breaking them. And there's something about that that's especially disturbing, I think, and that's what impressed me the most when I read the stories of the women. Carla, there's four women who have essentially said the same thing, that Eric Schneiderman hit them, choked them, spit on them, verbally demeaned them, and typically, well, I don't want to say typically, but also threatened to kill each one of them if they left him for any particular reason. There's one woman who stayed in that type of relationship for a year. Several other women were in it for lengths of time and stepped out of it. One woman that refused it pretty much right off the bat when it occurred. What's the psychology behind the person being so much of a crusader against the very thing that they're doing in private? What it reminds me of is how you often find pedophiles in places uh-huh. where they are in the position to help children, coaches, teachers, other Pedophiles often look for ways to access victims, and reading the stories of the women reminded me very much of that. I think it's also very possible that he used his position. It's not so much private behavior, but that he, in fact, used his public position as a way to silence his victims. And some of the stories include some of the dynamics where he would essentially say to people, and much. it also reminds me of police officers and the way their victims talk about how difficult it is to break their silence because they say things, if I'm remembering correctly, like what Mr. Schneiderman said to at least one of his victims, I am the law. You know, he's the highest law enforcement agent in the state of New York. And the difficulty in coming forward that goes above and beyond the things that normally keep victims silence, including shame, including all kinds of psychological issues that make it difficult for people to confront what's happened to them, including PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But in addition to that, you have to overcome the fact that they feel that they're not going to be believed because this person is in law enforcement. 
Yeah, it's obviously complicated, and I agree with what's been said. I want to just add that I feel like I read somewhere something about him being controlling. And mm-hmm. I know the New Yorker article cites Evan Stark's book on coercive control. And often that's kind of the hidden part of the story that outsiders or bystanders don't understand. But when there is a large degree of coercive control, there's a lot of terror that attaches to that. So not only is he using some degree of physical violence and sometimes in the context of sexual interaction and sometimes not, when people react to that, he's basically denying, dismissing, and threatening. And he's controlling their lives to varying degrees in terms of how they live their lives. They knew they were at risk, and he made it explicit. So, and then when, you know, one of the stories, she talks about him coming back over with flowers and a case of wine as a sort of a mm-hmm. rapprochement. And she kept saying, you hit me, you hit me. And he's like, he didn't want to talk about that, she says. Some, you know, why a woman will accept that is a complicated question. But I think part of it was his persona was bigger than life. And his persona was the champion of women. And I think, you know, that combined with a certain amount of control and messing with people's minds and fear can make it very hard for a partner to know for sure what she's dealing with and to feel safe taking steps to get out of it. And specifically, he took steps to control the women. He asked one woman to get rid of a tattoo. He regularly told women that their legs were too fat and controlled the types of things that they ate. Julie, you were a survivor of domestic violence. How does a woman work her way out? First of all, how do you recognize that you're in it? You know, obviously the things like hitting and so forth, they can be obvious from that. But the psychological aspect, how does a woman recognize that they're in a situation? And then what does a woman need to do to get out of that situation? Well, that's a great question. A couple of great questions, actually. I think the kind of irony of it is, even though when this is going on, the victim, me, whoever, realizes that it's wrong. It's not okay. But they may not define it as domestic violence, especially if it's not physical. And, you know, it would be surprising to me if the women in this particular case didn't call it domestic violence either because they weren't getting beat up all the time. And, you know, I think Joan mentioned about the bringing the flowers and so forth, and that kind of manipulative kindness often will follow episodes of abuse. And so it's very confusing. And there's what we call crazy making, kind of making the victim sort of second guess herself and not really, you know, is it really as bad as I think? And maybe he didn't mean it. And I think because of the kind of grooming process and everything that leads up to it before the abuse starts, because often it doesn't until they're with him. Sometimes apparently he would just you know, he would hit them before he even really knew them as soon as he got them alone. But for the most part, abusers tend to try to be more manipulative until they're in a bit of a relationship, at least. But they do push for very quick sex. And he certainly seemed to be doing that in each case. And I think the victims become confused and don't know what to call it and how to name it. So in my case, for example, I was never physically hurt or injured, but the psychological abuse, the kinds of things that he was doing, the excessive control, the name calling, the telling them what to wear, how to dress, calling them whores and having that entitled, you know, ownership kind of attitude, calling one his brown slave and making her repeat that she was his property and calling him master and so forth. And the isolation, you know, cutting them off from their friends, making fun of their working and 
that sort of thing. What happens is that as awful as it is, it's not necessarily defined as abuse. And so victims try to figure out why is he doing it? Is it because he's drinking and he drank to excess? So they probably thought, well, you know, he's just doing it because he's drunk. That was one of the allegations that was made in common among all of the women that he drank and then became abusive after drinking. And in fact, there's a woman. And John, I'm going to ask you this question because you're, I think, in the situation somewhat similar. You know, as high powered, all three of you as high powered women who have legal connections and you travel in circles that are like the ones that the women in Eric Schneiderman's circle did. He got one woman alone, abused her. She backed out of the situation, but then, and disclosed it to her friends. And there was physical marks of abuse on her. But her friends, who were likewise high-powered women and Democrats, advised her not to do anything. In an instance saying, he's doing more good. So, Joan, how do you deal with that? And are those women that are giving that advice, are they traitors to other women? It is so tricky. I mean, I think it is never right to tell someone who's being abused to not get out or not report it to protect the abuser. It is just never right. But I understand the instinct that he's championing really important rights and causes. And I can understand other people kind of minimizing it the same way sometimes the victim herself minimizes it because this is this great guy, this great ally of women's rights and women's activists. And, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong and maybe it's not as bad as I thought. And, you know, maybe he was just drunk and needs some help to get sober. And, you know, all kinds of excuses that he undoubtedly fuels because, Abusers are master manipulators in that way of making it not their fault and making it the victim's fault or some other excuse. And so, you know, obviously having your friends react that way to protect him rather than to protect her is has got to be devastating because to get out of something like this takes enormous strength and enormous support. And at least in that case, that woman did not get that support. One other thing about it is that you compared his victims to people like the three of us who are, you know, very accomplished and fairly well known in our fields and, you know, identified with feminist and activists against violence against women. Yes. I think that makes it actually harder for some people to get out of something like this because there's even greater shame in admitting that you were victimized when that's your identity as a feminist or an activist. And I've seen that scenario play out for, for instance, in same-sex relationships where, say, a woman who's being victimized by her lesbian lover, who's a leading activist of gay rights and women's rights, or the victim herself is, you know, they feel like they can't go public or even go to their friends and other people because it will destroy the reputation of themselves as well as their abuser to say they were victimized while they were fighting these causes. So it's incredibly complicated, and it's one of the ways that abusers are able to, I think, manipulate and control and suppress what they're doing in cases like this. Well, we're going to take a quick break before we move on to our next segment. We want to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. 
And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Professor Carla Fisher, recently retired adjunct professor from the Illinois College of Law, Attorney Joan Meyer from George Washington University Law School, and Julie Owens, herself a survivor of domestic violence and a domestic violence expert witness. Now, right before the break, we were talking about the effect of Eric Schneiderman's power over women themselves of power and the difficulty in separating themselves from the situation. For Eric Schneiderman, Carla, what comes next? Is he going to be facing criminal charges? My memory for how old uh, many of these allegations are is not terribly accurate, but I believe they are all, or most of them, are quite some time ago. And I would expect that the statute of limitations for many of them is expired. I think the other thing to understand is that in many states, domestic violence, especially a first offense, your likely outcome, even if the person is convicted, they would be sentenced to a six-month partner intervention program. So again, I don't know what the laws in New York are and what the expected outcome would be in those cases, even if they could be prosecuted. But I think that there are additional hurdles for victims when they have to face down their abuser in court. That may make it difficult, even assuming the victims want to prosecute and prosecutors will move forward with a case. I would be surprised to see any criminal charges filed or, in fact, those criminal charges to lead to convictions. Maybe I'm just old and cynical, but that's the way I see it. Well, Julie, you've acted as a domestic violence expert witness in many cases. What types of things can you identify as, are there any kind of indicators? You know, is it, are men saying things to women preceding any type of domestic violence? Like I, I read in one instance in the New Yorker article that once a man says to a woman, I'm going to kill you, which in this instance, Eric Schneiderman is alleged to have said against several women. Once those words, I'm going to kill you, come out of that man's mouth, it's time to leave and report that person to the police because that's a reportable offense. What other triggers exist? Well, I think first and foremost, the controlling behavior, the attitude of entitlement and superiority, and the fact that he was extremely dominant. What I think is extraordinarily dangerous is that he was sexually violent and he was strangling them. Strangulation is one of the absolutely most dangerous forms of domestic violence. A lot of women, you know, people call it choking, which is, you know, when you get food stuck in your throat. Strangulation, suffocation is quite common and it can cause permanent brain damage, traumatic brain injury, permanent memory loss. We see it a lot. And that is a felony in most states. And that was by far, as far as I can tell, the most dangerous type of abuse that he was doing. He was trying to make it like a game, say it was a game, because there is this thing people are doing now called breath play. But it wasn't play, and there was nothing about it that was playful. But that was how he was disguising it, I guess, or trying to, you know, excuse it. But I think looking for controlling behavior, someone who has to have their way, a lot of times they do have a bad temper, although anger doesn't cause it. In this case, he seemed to probably get calmer. And there is a type of abuser, research has told us, been dubbed a cobra, someone who sort of coils down, waits to strike. Actually, their blood pressure goes down the more violent they become. And I suspect that that's probably what Schneiderman was, is very cold and calculating. But that's a lot of times I think you can't tell someone it's abuser. They are the guy next door. They don't act like you would expect someone to be. They're not the boogeyman. And that's why it's so shocking when it happens. And 
and women are taken aback and they think, wait a minute, you know, something's wrong with him. Or something's wrong with me. Well, yeah, usually that's what they do. Victims feel very guilty and try to figure out what they did to cause it. But abusers don't tend to feel guilty at all, which is, you know, the irony. But there are signs to look for in a way. And I think that that push for very quick sex, abusers know they need to do that because, you know, you're going to figure them out. In my case, I started on my honeymoon, on my wedding night. And I asked my husband, why didn't you do this before we got married? And he said, you never would have married me. And so, you know, we as victims don't see it. We don't name it. And largely it's because other people don't do it either. They say, oh, he's really, he's a good provider. He's a nice guy. He's a good father. He's a whatever. And they don't see the coercive control, the way you're living under siege where 24-7, it's like being a hostage, like being a prisoner. But you are afraid to leave because of the threats and because of the prior violence. And so that fear is very, very powerful. And one of the reasons it's so hard for victims to see what's going on and for outsiders to recognize it is that it's on a spectrum with what society considers to be normative gendered behavior. It's normative for men to feel dominant to women and women to feel subordinated to some degree. I mean, the Me Too movement is is really raising that, elevating that fact. It's normative for men to maybe criticize or demean women here and there. It's normative for women to feel ambivalent and unsure and insecure and for men to be secure, confident, and not apologize. All these things are just a little more extreme on the spectrum of what is normative in the culture. And that is why the Me Too movement is so important and why outing this kind of story is so important because it's helping people recognize that what becomes dangerously abusive, physically or sexually, begins as something that is on the same spectrum of, with behaviors that we basically accept in this culture. And ultimately, the cure for it isn't just what's wrong with these women, they just need to wake up and see. It's the whole culture start recognizing the sickness at the root of our gender relations and what we accept in gender relations. And how do we prompt other women to also not counsel other women to stop reporting this? And in, in this particular instance, since it's a particularly chilling situation where his ex-wife, who was also on his public relations team, after the allegations came out from the four women, she stepped up and said, this is not the Eric that I know. This has never happened before. And it's a little difficult to believe that. That's fascinating to me. It's difficult to believe it, but I don't think it's impossible because you can see that Eric Schneiderman is a split personality. He's one person publicly, he's another person privately, and it is conceivable I don't know that with this particular woman, this part of him didn't come out. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can assume that it did. Maybe it did, and she suppressed it, and it wasn't serious enough for her to ever turn against him, and they clearly had a mutually beneficial financial and professional relationship going on, and she had a lot to lose. So maybe she's suppressing the truth, but maybe she's not, and maybe he somehow... You know, maybe they divorced because there were some problems, but it didn't rise to the level that these relationships did. And he discovered that he could more easily abuse women who he wasn't married to. And that's the way he's going to go. I don't know. Well, there was an interesting flip in this story where he said that after Trump became elected, he became despondent and really started to drink exacerbating the situation that it was described before. He apparently thought he had a great relationship with Hillary Clinton, and had she won, uh, his star would have risen even further. I'm sure. It was very interesting because I was reading today that he also was cheerleading for the resistance after Trump was elected and saying, we must not despair. And he was he was doing a lot of good. You know, he was bringing hope. And Trump sued him personally. <laughs> 
in response to his lawsuit against Trump University. Yeah. So he was an incredibly important figurehead of the resistance and of the left and in on behalf of women's rights. And I'm here to say, I don't know that that was pure hypocrisy. I don't think it needs to have been. I think some part of him believed in that. And the other part of him couldn't help what he was doing. Or maybe he could have helped. I don't want to give him excuses. But I think both parts of him were real. And he wanted to fight for good things. And he believed in good things. And the other part of him, this monstrous need and desire to dominate and humiliate women, was also a part of him. I think it's a reality. It's another reason why it's so hard for society and victims to get their heads around abusers. Because they're really complicated. They're not all one way. And part of his public relations response was a statement that said that he engaged in role-playing during sex. And there is a branch of sex, BDSM, where this type of behavior can be acceptable as long as it's consented to in advance. And there's a point in time that there's a cessation of it if consent stops. So where is that where that line gets drawn or is there, how does that work out? I mean, I'm sure others will have answers, but very quickly I'll just say, that's a tried and true defense, you know, first defense of the sexual abuser. And, you know, luckily these women are alive to tell the tale and say, no, there was no such consent, period, the end. But, you know, a lot of sexual abusers use that claim. And there was a strangulation that killed a woman. I think it was called the preppy murder. And the guy claimed it was consensual sex and she hurt him and he strangled her sort of reactively, not meaning to. You know, you can say anything once your victim is dead and there's no one to refute it. But, you know, I believe these victims who are saying there was no consent and some some of them have contemporaneous reports to friends who are corroborating that they were very upset and very distressed at the time, which tells you they're not just belatedly making up a claim that there was no consent. And Carla, where does this misogyny start? Psychologically, what's the root of this? Is this how do men become so callous? You know, there has been psychological research for more than 40 years trying to identify the differences between men who are abusive and men who are not abusive. Researchers have given groups of men every possible psychological test that is known, and their answer is abusive men are not really any different psychologically than non-abusive men. This is about behavior that's a choice, and I think this also, I think, highlights Joan's point earlier that you can't really tell the difference between an abusive man and a non-abusive man except by his decision to engage in abusive behavior. This is not about psychology. This is about someone choosing to behave in a particular way. And in a society that doesn't see a whole lot of problem with it. I mean, if you look pre-Me Too, sexual abuse of women by men in positions of power was accepted and people turned the other way and protected the men. And all of a sudden now it's you know, we're questioning that, thank God, and the victims are starting to be given credibility. But, you know, there's a reason these men think they can do this, because they can. They have been able to, and they have been allowed to by society. It's not just the men themselves doing something aberrational. They're doing something demeaning and abusive that society has pretty much accepted until very recently. And it's the old joke out in Hollywood was that there was a casting couch. and That, that phrase came from somewhere. Right. Uh-huh. That power still is abused to some degree, and the women's rights of Me Too movement and, and Time's Up movement are moving forward. Where's the tipping point going to be? <laughs> That's a good question. I think when you talk about why 
men abuse. Firstly, I think it's very easy to get kind of focused on individual abusers. And as Carla was saying, this is societal and this is actually global. It's one out of three women in the world that's been abused in an intimate relationship. And really the linchpin of it is gender inequality. And if you get really down to the root of it, Women and men are not equal. They're not equal under the law, not in this country, and a lot of countries. And because it's been that way for centuries, it's handed down, and it is a belief system. And abusers learn it, and they can unlearn it if they want to, but it's working really well for them, as Carla said. So the way that we stop domestic violence is not to send everybody to anger management because we know it's not an anger problem. It's a belief system problem. And that's why they can go, you know, to an abuser intervention program and, and unlearn it if they choose to. But the only ones we see are the tip of the iceberg, the ones that get arrested. And most of them, you know, see nothing wrong with what they're doing and they don't want to change and they're not going to change. But so we have to stop raising boys who believe they're superior to girls and, you know, who use violence to control or to solve conflicts. So it's really going to take a paradigm shift. I don't know where the tipping point is. I think we're moving faster towards it than we have in a long time. But at the same time, there's a lot going on in this country that's moving us backwards around reproductive freedoms being taken away and other sorts. And I think that's a backlash. We need to wrap up for a moment as empowered women and who are activists. As Julie mentioned, we need a paradigm shift. So let's look forward and see what your recommendations are to shift that paradigm. I think for me, the Schneiderman case is a great example of the way that we see women's credibility completely undermined at every turn and by every abuser. I mean, his statement that this was a role play game, that his he didn't deny that he had engaged in these acts, except some of them he denied, but he didn't deny he engaged in these acts. He simply said that it was role playing, which is just a slightly more elegant way of saying she liked it rough, which we have seen. And Joan alluded to this a little earlier, too. It seems to me that when women's accounts of what has happened to them, when there is no corroborating evidence, then the defense is she's lying or she's crazy. The second one, if there is evidence, there's injuries, there's corroboration of other kinds, then it shifts to, well, you know, this is the way she wanted it. I think we need to be skeptical of these ever-shifting defenses in the way that we completely societally undermine the statements and the credibility of victims. And that's what I think the paradigm shift needs to be. And I would just add to that, that the paradigm shift is beginning. I mean, I, I'm going to give a, a hopeful note to this conversation, which is that the Me Too movement has given me and my colleagues more hope than we've had in a very long time, because the paradigm shift needs to happen socially. And one way it happens is through media and press and publicity. And Hollywood is a great barometer for these kinds of social norms shifts. And seeing the beginning of change and the calling out of this kind of abusive treatment, at least in the Hollywood and political setting, and seeing the focus shift not only from abuse at work, but to abuse at the home with this case and with the Rob Porter case, 
These are all the same story. They're all about men's abuse of women that has been normative and acceptable to varying degrees for a very long time. And suddenly the culture is saying, wait a minute, this isn't okay. And wait a minute, these women aren't lying. This is really true. I think that's the beginning of the paradigm shift that we need. And I think the challenge is going to be to see that paradigm shift carry forth when we don't have four or six or 18 corroborating victims to reinforce each other's credibility. When we only have one, for instance, or two, as in the Porter case, which I think seems to be working. But in the domestic violence setting, most of the time there's one, one survivor who's going to court and try to convince the court that what she's saying is true. And the data I've been gathering about what happens in court is not encouraging. But I'm hoping that the Me Too movement and the there's a new willingness to believe women and to get that a woman abuse is real, that women haven't been lying about it, and that it really matters, that it's no longer acceptable. And I'm hoping that that shift is going to spread and carry over into courts and into one-on-one domestic violence settings. And this kind of publicity is what we need to make the change, frankly. Good. Julia, let's get your final thoughts. I agree. You know, well said, well said. I think we have to start by believing victims. And if somebody says they're abused, believe them and back your way out of it if other evidence comes to light. Because most of the time, victims are denying it. And when we think they might be exaggerating, they're really minimizing. And we don't look at other crimes and how we're going to stop those by looking at the victims. And I think we do in these crimes. We say, you know, what'd she do to make him so mad? What'd she provoke him? You know, in rape, what was she wearing? Don't look at the victims. We need to look at the perpetrators, you know. And so the shift, I think, is going to be not, you know, focusing on how do we focus on and stop abusers from abusing and how do we stop raising them, as I said. And that paradigm shift is going to have to move from this dominator kind of mentality and society that we have, as Dr. Rianne Eisler would say, we're doing a webinar next week, move to a partnership model. Instead of someone always on top and somebody else always on the bottom, let's be partners. Let's work on getting towards mutuality. That's when we're going to see less violence. That's when we're going to see more cooperation. But we have to demand zero tolerance for the abuse of women and children, period. And that means we can't be bystanders. We can't collude. Silence is the voice of complicity. (laughs) Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. We would like to get Professor Carla Fisher's contact information so our listeners can reach out to you, and then we'll get that from Joan and finally Julie. You can email me at Carla Fisher, Ph.D., J.D., at gmail.com, or call me at 217-398-2116. Great. Joan? I can be reached at my law school office, which is 202-994-2278, or my email, jmeyer, M-E-I-E-R, at law.gwu.edu. Great. And finally, Julie, thank you. And I am, uh, my website is www.domesticviolenceexpert.org. I have a contact form there. I've got a newsletter, and that's the best way to reach me, domesticviolenceexpert.org. Great. That brings us to the end of our show. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.